0: Has time come for value stocks return? That's the question we're going to be considering on today's Macro Peace Theater episode. I'm your narrator, Emil Kalinowski, and I'll be reading from Lynn Alden's October newsletter, the title of which is A Resurgence in Value. It was posted on October 24th, 2021 at Lynn Alden's website, lynnalden.com. And in this newsletter, we learn that we have gotten used to growth stocks always winning and only a bumpkin would consider value stocks but lynn goes back in time a long time decades and what does she find well you'll find out as we read through the newsletter but what we find is it's not unusual in fact it's normal for value stocks to do better than growth stocks and we may have observed A recent inflection in the relationship between the two. Chapter 1. Value Stocks. Not quite dead yet. Sentiment on value stocks and value investing is still near a historical low point. With about 90 years of data, value stocks have historically outperformed growth stocks in aggregate, although not in every decade. In particular, this past 2010's decade has been crushingly in growth stocks' favor, and it hasn't been close. The mega-cap internet stocks like Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Alphabet, Netflix, Salesforce, and a host of other growth companies like Visa have been the main drivers of U.S. stock market and, indeed, global stock market performance, as most value sectors lagged badly and chopped sideways for much of the decade. That trend differs significantly from multiple previous decades where an investing approach that leaned towards buying out of favor stocks did better. This past decade was a particularly brutal one for value investors and the fact has been well known for years. This long-term chart shows the Russell 1000 value total return index divided by the Russell 1000 growth total return index. When it's going up, it means value stocks in aggregate are outperforming and when it's going down it means growth stocks in aggregate are outperforming that particular chart relies on the FTSE russell's metrics for what constitutes a value stock versus a growth stock in truth there is no firm definition between the two other than that value stocks tend to be cheaper slower growing companies that often pay a dividend and return capital to shareholders while Growth stocks tend to be more expensive and faster growing and are still reinvesting heavily into their business. As the chart shows, one value stocks outperformed for much of the 1980s, leading into the savings and loan crisis. Two growth stocks outperformed for much of the 1990s, leading into the dot com bubble. Three value stocks outperformed for much of the 2000s, leading into the subprime mortgage crisis. And four, growth stocks outperformed for much of the 2010s, leading into the COVID-19 pandemic and subsequently fiscally driven inflationary reversal. The two factors, growth and value, went in big cycles as economic bubbles and monetary policy shifted around and ultimately ended with excess each time. Looking back at the past three years, we see that the ratio of value-to-growth stock performance bottomed in 2020 and started to turn up after lockdowns eased and vaccines were announced. It then had a correction again in 2021 to a higher low, in part due to the Delta variant and fiscal spending slowdowns. But now is seemingly back in an uptrend, with energy stocks and financials holding up pretty well. I'm watching to see if it holds this trend or not. Recent years have been full of people making growth-to-value rotation calls, but this one has been in place for a while, and came with a recession and a rather fundamental shift in fiscal and monetary policy, which is when most major value growth rotations occur. If we want to go back more than the four decades that the Russell has data for, here's a great chart. It shows the rolling five-year return differential between value and growth stock from the early 1930s to 2020. When it's green, positive, it means value stocks have outperformed over that period. And when it's red, negative, it means growth stocks have outperformed. Value stocks outperformed during 82% of rolling five-year periods, according to that data set. But the 1930s and the 2010s were major exceptions where growth stocks outperformed by large and persistent gaps. Anyone who has followed my work for a while knows that I regularly use the 1930s-1940s analog to describe the 2010s-2020s economic situation, at least in terms of fiscal and monetary policy and the long-term debt cycle. History doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. The disinflationary 2010s were very similar in many ways to the disinflationary disinflationary 1930s, and the inflationary 2020s are shaping up to be similar to the inflationary 1940s. This is one of the set of charts among several that I've used in my research pieces to show the similarities between those two periods. Some analysts... Don't like that comparison, and no analog will ever be a perfect fit. But I find that it provides tremendous context for understanding this unusual market environment. It allowed investors to anticipate major stimulus and inflation in response to the 2020 crisis. A lot of investors say this type of economic environment is unprecedented, whereas the truth is, it's just unprecedented in developed markets in our lifetimes. There is historical context for situations like this, and then it becomes our job to find the details for how it differs from those otherwise eerily similar periods. I can't imagine trying to make investment decisions in this environment without at least having studied that similar period. It's not too surprising that the value-growth-equity-performance differential shows us similarity between the 1930s and 2010s as well. During both eras, a massive credit bubble popped, and economic growth stagnated for the better part of a decade, with interest rates held near zero. Growth stocks significantly outperformed value stocks during those decade-long stagnations, as economic growth was weak, commodity prices were low, bank credit was contracting, and investors piled into whatever growth stocks were available. In the 1930s, that state of affairs persisted until the early 1940s, when policymakers were basically forced by external catalysts, total war, to do massive monetized fiscal stimulus and to hold rates low despite the high inflation that all of this spending caused. Similarly, in the 2010s, the state of affairs persisted until the early 2020s when pandemic lockdowns hit a highly leveraged economy with millions of people living paycheck to paycheck, putting policymakers in a position to either massively stimulate or watch a widespread debt collapse happen. And just like the 1940s, even as inflation began running hot, policymakers have so far kept interest rates low in the 2020s. As we head deeper into the 2020s, I do expect value stocks to catch a stronger bid than they did in the 2010s, much like how they did in the 1940s. There are some headwinds against that idea, like the constant flows of capital into passive index funds that make up a large portion of the equity market. These funds buy based on market capitalization, and and thus inherently have a large-cap growth momentum strategy, but overall, I think the trend is worth watching to see if it overcomes these opposing forces. Let's break down how that could happen. This chart shows the S&P Blah. this chart shows the s and 500 sector distribution since 1975. The energy sector is coming back up off its lowest ever 2% contribution to the index but still remains extremely low at 3%. I think that sector could double to 6% or more over the next decade after a strong period of outperformance going forward, and it will have paid out above-average dividend yields during that journey as well. I wrote about my bullish view on oil and gas This past summer, and indeed this autumn we've been seeing energy shortages in Europe and rising energy prices everywhere. I think that trend will have dips and surges, but that it will persist deeper into the decade. Materials and financials could each increase by a point or two, and health care could certainly represent a bit more than it does now considering the world's aging demographics. In contrast, the technology and consumer discretionary sectors are the growth-oriented areas that could see a relative reduction in weighting into those other areas, mainly due to their valuations cooling off a bit. Technology will obviously be a big part of the future as it always is, but the valuations placed on tech stocks can change over time, and the existing large-cap set of tech stocks are already in their mature business phase, trying to maintain their established moats against competition and regulatory pressure, rather than rapidly innovating, generally speaking. While it's not exactly a tech investment, I continue to prefer a sizable Bitcoin allocation over any specific tech stock and I continue to monitor the rapid innovation in that ecosystem via the Lightning Network in particular, as well as other areas of the ecosystem. Importantly, if value stocks in aggregate do outperform growth stocks, still a big if at this point, it could take a few different forms. Both factors could have positive returns with value doing better than growth, or the value factor could have positive returns while the growth factor has negative returns, or both could have negative returns with the value factor doing less poorly between the two. I lean somewhat toward the middle option, but there is a lot of variance that can happen based on policy choices and other variables. Overall, I like to analyze individual stocks rather than rely on broad growth ETFs or value ETFs because I want to isolate inexpensive stocks that nonetheless have a relevant product or service that is not being disrupted by new technology. Lastly, we can separate cyclical value from defensive value sectors, top-down charts, has a great chart on this subject from earlier this month, where they classify the energy and financial sectors as being cyclical value, and healthcare, consumer staples, and utilities as being defensive value. The chart compares those two groups separately to the S&P 500. This, This gives much resolution on how they performed over time. Overall, some level of mean reversion from the financial sector and especially the energy sector over the next 5 to 10 years from this low place interests me as a significant possibility. Chapter 2. Interest Rates and Equity Valuations A lot of people refer to the U.S. stock market being overvalued, and indeed it is trading at historically high valuations By most metrics, with bank accounts and treasuries yielding below the prevailing inflation rate for a while, investors have basically monetized stocks and used them as a store of value wherever possible. The equity market capitalization to GDP ratio, for example, reached record highs in recent years at over 200%. Long-term interest rates are in the red, since that's an important variable as well. Stock valuations in the United States have benefited from a four-decade-long bond bull market, in other words, lower and lower treasury yields. As bonds offered lower and lower yields, it presented a lower and lower discount rate for valuing companies, meaning that an investor could justify paying up for higher stock valuation, since her risk-free opportunity cost primarily consisted of low-yielding bonds. And as I described in my summer article on the subject, a period of rising yields tends to hurt growth stock valuations if they start the period at very high valuations. Growth stock valuations have been the primary beneficiary from lower yields. The two thousand dot-com bubble was somewhat of an anomaly on the stock valuation versus interest rates chart above, as valuations briefly reached very high valuations, even while treasury rates were moderately high. That was a particularly excessive period of stock market euphoria. Besides that unusually high valuation spike, we can see on that chart above that the 1980 to 2020 structural trend was for lower and lower interest rates and higher and higher equity valuations. If inflation remains sticky at 3-6% to or more for a while, then 10-year treasury yields could very well try to keep pushing up from current super low levels their yields are currently far below the inflation rate, which has only happened a few times in the past 60 years. Well, I don't think Treasury yields will be allowed by the Fed to reach too high, and indeed, I expect negative inflation-adjusted yields for most of the Treasury curve to exist for a long time, I also don't necessarily think the 10-3 yield curve The difference between the 10-year Treasury rate and the 3-month Treasury rate has reached its maximum steepness for this cycle yet. I don't have a particularly strong view on where Treasury yields will end up for this cycle, as that is partially a political decision by policymakers. The longer-term story, however, is that global developed market interest rates are around zero and likely can't go much structurally lower and are more likely than not to start grinding sideways for a while and will be negative in inflation-adjusted terms. A steeper yield curve benefits bank stocks, which also have some of the strongest balance sheets they've had for decades, a stark contrast to their balance sheet composition in 2007. And the inflationary conditions that push up yields tend to benefit energy and material stocks, or even more directly, are often driven by these sectors. These are all value sectors. Here's a chart I put together back in May, 2021, showing five-year rolling expansion or contraction in the oil price and the consumer price index over the long run. On the other hand, high inflation And widespread supply chain problems can hurt the profit margins of many companies. And a higher long-duration treasury yield, if we get that, would likely put pressure on the high valuations of growth stocks. Apple versus CVS Health Apple, for example, is projected by consensus analysts' expectations to have a lousy forward two years of EPS growth. After its monstrous 2021 growth, which makes its current 26 times price earnings ratio and $2.3 trillion market capitalization at least slightly uncomfortable. In contrast, CVS Health is projected by analysts to have slightly faster EPS growth, earnings per share, than Apple over the next two years, but the stock is trading at less than half of the earnings multiple of Apple. I'm not saying they should have as high of an earnings multiple as Apple, or that analysts are necessarily correct about the next two years of EPS performance, but I also don't think the earnings multiple gap going forward should remain quite as wide as it is. One thing I like about CVS is that after their major acquisition of Aetna, they prioritize the company around using those greater total cash flows to pay down debt and improve their financial position. Meanwhile, Apple still has a strong balance sheet but continues to increase its net debt level. In many ways, Apple already transformed into a value stock because its growth slowed and it began focusing on financialization. But unlike other value stocks, Apple's stock is rather expensive. Partly because of the 2020 2021 growth spurt in its earnings, and partially because investors are optimistic on its ongoing shift from hardware revenue to ecosystem service revenue. Cadence design versus enterprise products partners. An example I've used before is cadence design systems versus enterprise products partners. It's one of my go-to examples because they are both very high-quality companies for their industries. Cadence provides software for designing electronic and computer systems and switch toward a SAAS model that has benefited them greatly and justified a higher valuation to ext- some extent because the cash flows are more reliable. Meanwhile, Enterprise is a large and diversified transporter of natural gas, natural gas liquids, crude oil, and petrochemicals. Cadence is expected to have decent growth over the next couple of years after a recent multi year period of rapid growth from converting to the SAAS model, but it is already trading at a 50 times earning multiple. That valuation is Somewhat of a liability if 10 year treasury rates ever move back up from current historically low levels. Software as a service companies are very attractive investments and justify high valuations. But even those valuations have a limit when the PEG ratio, PEG ratio, is four to five times. Meanwhile, there is a global energy and petrochemical shortage occurring and enterprise has the wide moat physical infrastructure to transport and export some of these things it is trading at a historically low valuation and has a historically high and well covered distribution yield of seven percent plus that it has grown for 23 consecutive years while its balance sheet ironically carries a slightly higher S&P credit rating than Cadence has. Again, Enterprise shouldn't have the same valuation as Cadence, but it seems that investors are piled quite tightly onto one side of the ship toward growth here. Going forward, when factoring in the distributions, Enterprise is more appealing to me than Cadence in terms of the probability of providing good forward total returns. Microsoft versus EOG resources. I'm a fan of Microsoft stock, have owned it for years, and still do. But with a staggering 2.3 trillion market capitalization and with a price earnings ratio in the high 30s, it should be quite hard for Microsoft to match its past five years of performance with the next five years unless consensus analysts' expectations are way too bearish. Meanwhile, energy producer EOG Resources is generating great cash flow, has radically improved its balance sheet to the strongest financial position it has ever been in, and yet its stock price still trades rather cheaply compared to its earnings at current energy price levels. The Microsoft EOG Total Return Performance Ratio chart is pretty interesting. It feels like we've been here before. Microsoft radically outperformed in the 1990s up to its peak dot-com bubble valuation. Then, in the 2000s, its valuation popped while oil entered a massive bubble of its own. After that, in the 2010s, oil entered a long bear market, and Microsoft rose like a phoenix to outperform many competitors with a transformation towards software-as-a-service and cloud computing, and it once again crushed EOG in terms of gains, with the performance ratio having an accelerated blow-off top as the stocks entered into the pandemic lockdown recession of 2020 and sharply diverged. But since then, EOG is gaining on Microsoft again from that bubble peak. I still think that the trade has more to go in EOG's favor before the dust settles, even though it could take years to play out. Overall, these are just some examples of things I'm looking for in the market. The value factor has put in a pretty clear reversal from growth stocks over the past year, but the continuation of that reversal is by no means assured. Comparative valuations further justify an allocation to value stocks, although growth stocks do have a tendency to surprise to the upside, especially in recent years. I like both in my portfolio, but prefer value stocks at current levels overall. Thank you for listening to this episode of Macro Peace Theater. I hope you enjoyed this latest newsletter from Lynn Alden. I did indeed. And as was the case with the August reading, you have to go and print this out yourself because you're missing more than half the story. I count at least 17 charts and one table in this section. And then there are still two more sections i didn't read out including portfolio updates to lynn's model portfolios as well as her final thoughts on rent and wage inflation so lots of reasons for you to actually go to lynn's website which is lynn alden lynn is l-y-n alden is a-l-d-e-n and for you to check out the actual newsletter itself as well as all the other posts that are on the website you can follow lynn on twitter at lynn alden Contact. ladies and gentlemen i will talk to you again very soon